The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 11 and reading verses 21 and 28. Verses 21 and 28 in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I really want to take a phrase out of the 21st verse and a phrase out of the 28th verse. Woe unto you, come unto me. Now I take these two phrases like this together and put them into juxtaposition. In order that I may direct your thoughts and minds and attentions this evening to the very vitals and fundamentals of the Christian faith, these are strange words. They seem to be utterly contradictory, and yet they were spoken by the same person. Not to the same people, but by the same person. I have many reasons, as I say, for calling your attention to them, and for taking them together. They, they come together, they come together in this chapter. I take them together in order that I may show you certain things. The first is this. They do, after all, represent a very perfect summary of the great message of the Christian gospel. The Christian message is a kind of ellipse, and it has two points. And here, in these two phrases, we have those two points. Woe unto you, come unto me. And the whole of the gospel is within that ellipse. I call attention to it because it seems to me that more than ever we need to have a clear understanding as to what the message of the gospel really is. The confusion is appalling. But here it is, it's summarized for us. Here it is coming out of his very lips and mouth. Woe unto you, come unto me. Very well, I want to show you that it does then summarize the essential message of the gospel. I call attention to it also because in a very striking and almost terrible manner, it brings home to us the seriousness of what you and I are doing together at this very moment. The most serious thing a man ever does in this world is to listen to the gospel. There is nothing which is in any way comparable to listening to the gospel, or if you like, to reading the gospel, but particularly to listening to it, because it is through the preaching of the word that God has ordained that his kingdom is to be extended. Now, we listen to many voices in this world, and it's right that we should do so. We're going to have a general election, and we shall listen to many addresses. We may be addressed in public meetings, we may be addressed on the wireless and on the television. And it's all right and it's important that we should listen. And we should all take an intelligent interest in these matters. It's important, then I say, that we should listen to all these things. But, however important all that may be, it pales into insignificance. When you put it side by side with what you are doing at this very moment, listening to a proclamation of this gospel. Why? Why do I say that this is the most serious thing and the most important thing that men and women can ever do? Well, our Lord himself supplies the answer, you see. You listen to the statesmen and the politicians, I say it's right that you should do so because your future welfare depends upon it. The amount of money you have depends upon it. The houses you may have depend upon it. The whole future of the country may depend upon it. 
Whether we have war or not may depend upon it. These questions, these political questions, are not only relevant, but they're very important. They're going to determine how we're to spend our life in this country during the next five years. But my dear friend, what you're listening to at this moment isn't only going to determine what your life's going to be for the next five years. It's going to determine what your life's going to be forever and forever, your eternal destiny. It's our Lord who says that. I don't say that. I want to show you in a moment how he says it. But what he's really saying here is this, and he brings it out, you see, in these words. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. As you listen to this gospel, your eternal destiny is being decided. There is nothing that is in any way comparable to listening to this gospel. And then the third reason I have for taking these two phrases together is this. That they help us uh, to understand why it is that mankind is divided about this person who uttered the two phrases. They are divided about him and he divides them. He said himself, he said, think not that I am come to bring peace on earth. I came not to bring peace but a sword. And he says that the effect of his message will be to divide perhaps between mother and daughter, father and son, even husband and wife. There has never been a dividing force in this world in any way comparable to the gospel. It is a mighty sword that divides men and women into two groups. You're either in the group corresponding to Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the people on whom he pronounces a woe, or else you belong to these other people to whom he addresses his gracious invitation. Now, you see, all that is put before us immediately. Here I say are two essentially different statements. Woe, come! Made by the same person, but made to different people. And this is the great question. Why is it that the effect of his coming is to divide? How is it that it's possible for one person, the same person, to utter two statements which on the surface seem to be not only different, but almost contradictory. Very well then, my dear friends, you see, this is a very momentous matter. So let me put it like this to you at this moment. The vital question for every one of us at this second is this. Which of these two groups do you belong to? You're in one or the other. There's no other possibility. There are but two divisions. Here they are. I ask, which of the two groups do you belong to? What is the Son of God saying to you? What has he said to you? It's one or the other of these two. There is nothing, I say, in the whole world tonight which is comparable to this question. What is the Son of God saying to you? This, then, I say, is so important that we must look at it and analyze it and consider it carefully together. And let's do it like this. Who is this person who speaks in this way and manner? Here is the first great question, obviously. People may say to me, you say we're doing something tremendously important tonight, more important than anything else. You say it's more important that we should listen to this person than to anybody, great statesman, greatest statesman the world has ever known. Why do you say that? On what grounds do you say that? Why should we listen to him? The people are outside the churches tonight because they obviously don't believe what we believe about this person. Before you take the words, you've got to take the person who utters the words. And indeed, he compels you to do so. He says, come unto me. Well, that's a staggering thing to say. But of course, it is typical and characteristic of what he says everywhere. Now, here is the great cause of confusion today, it seems to me. The question is, what think ye of Christ? And I am simply here to say this, that we must take him as he is. What else can you do? 
What other authority have you for doing anything else? He must be taken as he is. And the confusion arises because men and women won't take him as he is. They take certain things about him that they like and they ignore the others. And then others perhaps do the exact opposite, but they're both equally guilty. He must be taken as he is. He must be taken as a whole. And this, of course, is the great cause of trouble. Who is this person? Now, did you notice in the reading just now how, in a sense, the whole of this chapter deals with this one question as to who this person is? Even a man like John the Baptist, great prophet as he was, the last of the great succession of prophets, even he, probably as the result of imprisonment and ill health and suffering and weakness, even he got into a certain amount of confusion about this. In the prison he heard the works of Christ and he sent two of his disciples asking this question, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Are you the long-promised Messiah or are you not? John was in confusion. So he sends and asks his famous question. And these other statements, these other paragraphs in, the, in, in this chapter are all indicative of the same thing. This confusion. Our Lord says, Where unto shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the market and calling to their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He hath a devil. Son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Confusion concerning him. That was the trouble in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. It's the trouble always. Who is this? Why should we listen to him? And it is, of course, the fundamental question. And I say there's only one way to approach it, and that is to listen to him. To take him as he is, as a whole. And you'll find some surprising things. You'll find severity. Woe unto you, he says. And there's nothing more severe than that. But then you find on the other hand incomparable gentleness. He's always been an enigma to the men of this world because of these apparent contradictions. Severity, gentleness, authority and majesty, lowliness and meekness. But here it is, it's all a part of his person. These things are all elements in his character. And you find this, I say, not only here, but you find it everywhere in the Gospels. But look at him, my friend. Listen to this person who asks men and women to listen to him. Who claims that he has the right to pronounce woe. Who doesn't hesitate to invite men and women to come unto him and to learn of him. He claims to be an authority on life and living. He says that he alone can give us peace and rest for our minds and hearts and souls. He tells us that if we follow him, we shall arrive at true life, life which is life indeed and life which is eternal. He claims equally definitely to be the judge of men and that mankind's destiny depends solely and utterly and entirely upon their relationship to him. Who is this person? Well, fortunately for us, he has himself answered the question. Listen. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight then. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man... Knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. Here is the only answer. Look at him. Look at one side only. And leave out the rest and he'll be an enigma and a problem because the rest always keeps on creeping in. Look at one facet only and you'll be in confusion. Look at him as a whole. Look at him in his entirety. Look at him as he is. And there's only one adequate explanation. He is none other than the only begotten Son of God. 
Here is one who doesn't hesitate to assert and to claim that it is he alone who knows the Father. And that no man can know the Father except he, the Son, should reveal him to him. Now here is the staggering claim. And you read your four Gospels and you'll come to this conclusion as has often been pointed out, that either this person who's speaking here is a lunatic, or else he's the son of God. He is either a raving madman. He is either the most arrogant person that this world has ever known. Or he is indeed, as he claimed to be, the son of God and the savior of the world. Well, my friends, here is the great reason for listening to him. It's all right, as I've said, to listen to men, to great men. Let's do so. Let's take every advantage that we have and every opportunity. But I say, above all men, listen, here is the Son of God come down on earth. The one who claims that he is the light of the world and that the destinies of every one of us and of the whole world is in his hand. That's who he is. Very well, having looked at the person, let us listen to what he says. And here we come again to the thing that is, of course, emphasized especially by the two phrases that I'm holding before you. And once more, it is absolutely essential that we should take the two statements together. Woe unto you. Come unto me. The threat, the judgment, the gracious, loving invitation. Now, I have no hesitation in asserting that the greatest trouble at the present time is due to the fact that men and women will not take the two sides, the two statements. They won't realize that the gospel is an ellipse. They say there's only one message in it. They pick out one of the two statements only and they ignore the other. The popular teaching today is that the message of the gospel is only the second. Come unto me. This is what's being preached. This is what's being written and published in books and in articles. This is the common idea. They say that it's impossible that he should have said the other thing. They say these two things are mutually contradictory and exclusive. You can't get a person who says, Come unto me and who preaches the love of God. You can't get such a person saying, Whoa, and pronouncing judgment. The thing they say is a blank contradiction. You don't have wrath and love in the same person and at the same time. There's something wrong here, they say. These people who wrote the Gospels, they misunderstood him. And that's been the cause of the trouble. That's the view, you see. They sit in judgment on the Scriptures. They say there's only one message. It's the message of love. And they say that the love of God is something that is unthinkable in terms of wrath. They say this is just a contradiction. And they say that to suggest that God, the God of love, is capable of judgment and wrath and indignation and can punish anybody eternally, they say it is impossible. Indeed, some of them are blasphemous in what they do say. They say that they don't believe in that bully of the Old Testament. They don't believe in the God of Sinai, the God of Moses. They only believe, they say, in the God of the New Testament, as if there were a contradiction between the two. You see, they say, come unto me, that's the message. There's not a word here about woe unto you. It's impossible, they say, it is unthinkable. The popular idea today is that God loves everybody. And that God will love everybody. What they're writing in their books is this. I could give you the titles, but I don't want to advertise them. What they say is this, that the tragedy of the world, the tragedy of mankind is that mankind doesn't know that God loves them. But they say whether they know it or not, God still loves them. And everybody's going to heaven and everybody's going to happiness and to glory. They say the whole business of preaching is just to tell people not to be so stupid, not to be so foolish, but to realize that God does love them. And he'll love them even though they spit in his face. Even though they deny him, he'll still love them. God loves everybody. And that's all we need to know. Come unto me. It's the only message. That's the position. They don't believe that he ever said, Woe unto you. Well now then, my friends, what about this? 
It's rather important, isn't it? We don't have an endless lease on life in this world. You can't afford to take a risk on a matter like this. How do we decide this matter? Well, let me ask a question. Who decides? Who decides? Does he decide or do you decide? What I'm holding before you tonight is not an isolated text. You read your four Gospels, you'll find he keeps on saying it. These two notes run right through the whole of his teaching from beginning to end. The question comes simply down to this. Is he your authority? Or are you your own authority? Is modern men your authority and his ideas of God and what the love of God should be like? It's one or the other. And it's a, such a tremendous question that I press it upon your consideration. If you say that there's only one side of this message and not the other, how do you know that? What authority have you for saying it? But wait a minute. I want to try to show you that not only are these two elements here and absolutely essential, but that there is no question of any contradiction whatsoever between them. Indeed, I want to go further and to say this, that if you don't have the two, you haven't got your gospel. You cannot really understand the gospel, the message of the New Testament, unless you take in these two elements. Let me put it like this to you. Here is a great book called the Bible. And yet you know it's divided into two sections, isn't it? Old Testament, New Testament. What's Old Testament and New Testament? It's just another way of saying, Woe unto you and come unto me. What's the Old Testament? Oh, it's the law. What's the New Testament? It's the gospel. And the law is something that pronounces judgment. It denounces woe. The whole world lieth guilty before God, says the law. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the law, and the whole of the New Testament is proclaiming this. And then there comes this gracious message. Oh yes, there are adumbrations of it in the old. There are prophecies concerning it. But the great thrust of the old is law, woe, denunciation, condemnation. The law was our schoolmaster, as Paul puts it to the Galatians, to lead us and to bring us to Christ. So you see, if you take out one or the other of these, you are violating this great unity in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New and the law and the gospel. Why do I say that we must have these two things? Well, I'm putting it like this to you. I don't understand this table and the bread and the wine unless I believe the two sides of this message. There's no meaning in it. This is nonsense. But if I take the two statements, the two phrases together, well then I have a full and an adequate understanding of this. Let me show you what it means. What is the message of the gospel? Well, it's this. The gospel doesn't just come to us and say, well now, God loves you, whatever you've been, whatever you've done, it's all right, God loves you, you've nothing to worry about. That isn't what the gospel says. How do the Gospels start? Well, you, you've got your summaries here in these various books. You'll find that the first preacher in the New Testament was John the Baptist. What did he preach? Did he just get up and tell people that God loved them all and that all was well? He didn't. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. He warned people to flee from the wrath to come. That was his message. And when our Lord began to preach, he did exactly the same thing. Listen to Mark summarizing it in Mark 1.15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What did Peter preach on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem? Wasn't it repentance? Under his tremendous preaching they cried out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Back came the thundering reply, Repent every one of you and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in that most lyrical 20th chapter of the book of Acts saying farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He reminds them that day and night with, with tears and without ceasing he had preached unto them what? The repentance that is toward God and the faith that is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. 
My friends, if you don't bring in these two things, you might as well throw your Bibles into the fire. You don't understand the Bible and its message apart from the two sides of this great and glorious gospel. What is the message? Well, it's this I say. The first thing the Bible tells us is that man has sinned and that man is guilty. You don't understand the world as it is tonight if you don't believe that. Why is the world in this appalling muddle? Why is there such tragedy all round and about us? Why is everything breaking down? There's only one answer. It's the old answer of the early part of Genesis. Man's rebellion against God. Man's sin. Man's fall. Man's guilt. And that's why we're all unhappy. That's why we all know what remorse is. That's why we all suffer from the accusations of conscience. Guilt. It's in us all. And the Bible tells us, yes, it's true. Man has sinned. He has revolted against God. He's fallen from the position in which he was originally made and created. But you see, it doesn't stop at that. It tells us that God hates sin and that God's judgment upon sin is manifest. This is the whole story of the human race. Men created and put in paradise. He rebels and sins and falls. What happens to him? He's turned out. God punishes him. He turned him out. He cursed the very ground. Man's got to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. And there he is still trying to do it and trying to get back, but he cannot. God manifested his judgment and his wrath. He pronounced his woe upon sin there away back at the beginning. And he's been doing it ever since. That is what he was doing at the flood. That he was doing, that was what he was doing on that occasion to which our Lord refers here when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God looked down and he saw the lives that were being lived in those cities of the plain, the immorality, the vice, the sexual perversions, everything that Sodom stands for. He hated it and he pronounced a woe upon it and they were destroyed. Tyre and Sidon, exactly the same thing. God, right through the Old Testament, is pronouncing his judgment upon sin and giving expression to his abhorrence and his utter hatred of it. He punished even the children of Israel. He punished a favorite like David. He punishes anybody who sins against him. He says, woe is to the man who sins against me and violates my law. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. Sin he cannot tolerate. He said it from the beginning. And the whole message of the Bible proclaims it and tells us that there shall be a final judgment, an ultimate assize, when everybody who has ever lived will stand before God and give an account of the deeds done in the body. Now, that's the great message of the Bible. Take that out, what have you got left? The Bible proclaims a holy God, a just and a righteous God. A God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. And he proclaims that the whole world lies guilty before him. Now, I say, you don't understand the gospel unless you start with that, unless you believe that. Let me put it to you like this. The great message of this New Testament is that when the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. The glory and the marvel and the wonder of Bethlehem and the babe in the manger. But what's it all about? If this is the Son of God, why has he come? Why does he come into the world? What is he doing here? And he gave the answer repeatedly. He said, the Son of Men is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He says, the Son of Men is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What's he talking about? What does it mean? Why did the Son of God ever have to come into this world? What's he doing here? What's he mean by his teaching? Oh, but let me ask a question. Why did he ever go to that cross? Why did he die on a hill called Calvary? Well, listen to what he says. Some of his friends took out their swords and they said, we're going to save you. This shan't happen to you. Put them back. Don't you know that I've come to do this? Don't you believe? He says, don't you realize 
that if I wanted to escape it, I could easily commend twelve legions of angels and I could be wafted to heaven. There'd be no difficulty at all. But I've come to die. How can I redeem? How can I fulfill all righteousness unless I do? Why is the Son of God in the world? Why is his death an absolute necessity? Why did he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem in spite of the entreaties of his friends? And there's only one answer to the question. He came to deliver us from the wrath to come. He came to deliver us from the woe pronounced by a holy righteous God in his holy law upon every sin and disobedience of men. What's the meaning of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection? There's only one answer. It is God providing a way whereby he can still be the punisher of sin and yet the savior of men. You don't understand the New Testament message, its history, or its great teaching, unless you take these two sides together. It is because of the woe pronounced on men that Christ comes and Christ died. Something must be done to solve this problem, and it's solved in him. And it's the only way in which it can be solved. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. God in Christ has solved, if I may so put it, his own eternal problem. God is righteous and holy and true. God is also love and mercy and compassion. Are these things in conflict? Is there a conflict in God? The thing is unthinkable. God isn't only love. God isn't only righteousness. He's both. The two things are there in God. Righteousness and love. And the great message of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus there is this great answer. How can God remain just and forgive a sinner? The answer is in Christ and him crucified. Justice and love are reconciled. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In this one person the woe and the love and mercy and compassion are united. So he is able to stand and to say on the one hand, Woe unto you, and on the other, Come unto me. In other words, our message is this, that salvation is offered freely in Jesus Christ and him crucified to all. He has come to die for the sins of men, and salvation is offered. But isn't it obvious that if this is refused and rejected, we are left under the woe and under the curse? What if you'd only got your Old Testament? What if you'd got nothing but the law? You'd be damned. You'd be condemned. You'd be lost. The message of the Old Testament is this, as I've reminded you, that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What if you were left there? But here is the New Testament with its proclamation of the way of salvation in the Son of God who dies for us, lays down his life for us, bears our sins in his own body on the tree. God in his righteousness punishes sin in him and therefore offers us pardon. He offers it to you. It's the only way. God can't forgive except in this way. If there were another way, his son would never have died. Do you think a God of love would ever have allowed his son to suffer and endure what he endured and suffered on the cross on Calvary's hill unless it were absolutely essential? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. But don't you see, my dear friend, that if you reject that, If you reject the only way of salvation and of deliverance, you are left under the condemnation. You are left under the woe. You are left in the hopelessness and the helplessness of it all. That's why the two sides are essential. There's no contradiction here. They're both saying the same thing. 
There is the condemnation. He can deliver you from it. But if you refuse him, you remain under condemnation. Now then, he said all that himself very perfectly. You'll find it recorded of all places in what people seem to regard as their favorite chapter of the Bible, namely the third chapter of John's Gospel. Listen to this. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen again. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. No, no, my dear friend, there's no contradiction here. These two things are absolutely essential. You don't understand the one without the other. They're both proclaiming the same thing. The same person is the speaker. He's either the source of this gracious invitation to you, or else he's the pronouncer of the woe upon you. That's what he says. Very well, we've looked at the person and we've looked at what he says. Let me come to the next, the third point, which is this. I started by asking you a simple question. I said, what is he saying to you? What has he said to you? Which of these two things? So I now make this statement. What is it that determines what he does say to us? And the answer is here in this very chapter, perfectly plainly and clearly for us all to see. He always starts with a gracious invitation. He lived and did good. He worked miracles. He did acts of kindness. Look at him. He went about doing good. He was the friend of publicans and sinners. They said that about him themselves. He would spend his time with the outcasts. There was nothing that he wouldn't do. And he healed the sick and he lay the blind. Go and tell John again, he says, the things you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor of the gospel preached to them. Oh, that's how he lived and that's how he spoke. Men went uh, to listen to him and they were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. The Roman authorities sent soldiers to arrest him. They came back without him and they said, Never men spake like this man. They never heard such wonderful, gracious, loving, kind things. That's how he always begins. And his deeds were deeds of mercy and of compassion. Well, then, why did they reject him? Why did they crucify him? That's the question, isn't it? What is it that determines what he says to us? There's only one answer. It is our attitude to him. It is our reaction to what he is, to what he says, to what he does. Notice what I'm saying. It isn't your life that decides it. It isn't your deeds. It isn't your misdeeds. It isn't your sins. It isn't your vileness. It is one thing only. It is your attitude. That's the point that our Lord makes here. What's the matter with the cities of the plain? Well, he tells you. Woe unto the Chorazin, woe unto the Bethsaida. These were the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. He says, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, and so on. Then he turns to his father and he says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. What is it that determines what he says? Well, look at the cities of the plain and the people who lived in them. It's always the same thing. You see, he's been saying something like this before. Wisdom, he says, is justified of her children. These were the people who were always complaining. He compares them to children sitting in the market. We have piped unto you and you haven't danced. We've mourned unto you and you haven't lamented. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said about him, he hath a devil. Uh, now and then I come, he says, both eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bedder, a friend of publicans and sinners. Ah, well, he says, wisdom is justified of her children. What's it all amount to, my dear friends? It comes down as simply as this, to this one proposition. 
what makes him say, Woe unto you to any men, is pride. And nothing but pride. Especially pride of intellect. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise, the prudent. Wisdom is justified of her children. The children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. What was the matter with these people? Why didn't they believe in him in Chorazin and Bethsaida and in Capernaum? Oh, it was because of their wisdom. You see, they sat in judgment on him. They looked on. They felt that they were critics. They could criticize John the Baptist. They could criticize him. And they contradicted themselves hopelessly. John was an ascetic. He was a severe man. Camel hair shirt, locusts and wild honey. Ah, they said, this is impossible. We want somebody who's friendly and will mix with us. Jesus Christ mixed with the outcasts, the publicans and sinners. And they said, this man's a glutton. He's a wine bibber. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. Look at the company he keeps. This man is immoral. This man is vile. Whatever is done for them, it's all wrong. But you see, their wise wisdom is justified of her children. Oh, they were self-confident. They were assured. They sat in judgment upon him. And that is why he pronounces his woe upon them. Why does he pronounce woe on them? Well, I'll summarize it like this. They never realized who he was. They thought he was only a man. A man for them to evaluate and to criticize and to say he's right here and wrong there. That's the man to whom he says, Woe is unto you. The wise men of this world. The man who thinks he knows and understands. The man who doesn't realize the significance of the coming of the Son of God into this world. He's a very clever man, of course. He reads his Sunday newspapers. He reads the books. He's an expert in politics. He's wonderful in business. Ah, he's a wise man. The wisdom of this world, wisdom, is justified of all her children. Ah, he's wise. But he looks into the face of the Son of God. And he turns away. They didn't realize that heaven, as it were, was walking amongst them. And they didn't see the significance of his works. He did these mighty works, these shattering works, these powerful works, works such as no man had ever worked before. Even them, even these didn't change them. Even these didn't impress them. They were too wise. They tried to explain these things away. They didn't believe in miracles and so on and so forth. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand his works. But as he puts it, the ultimate cause of the charge you see is this. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. In their wisdom they didn't need him, and they didn't need his help. They resented his teaching. He made them feel uncomfortable. His teaching made them feel that they were sinners. The Pharisees and scribes, they hated him for that reason. And all the wise people of the world did to the Greeks. The gospel has always been unutterable foolishness and folly. Laughable, ridiculous, blood of Christ, they say. Fancy believing something like that. The wrath of God and hell. Ah, what a joke it is. The wise men of this world. They don't want him. They've never seen any need of him. They could look into the face of the Son of God and not feel that they were utterly vile and foul. They were never broken. They never realized what sinners they were. They never realized how desperate they were. They never realized how hopeless they were. They never had any sorrow for sin. They never felt shame that made them almost commit suicide at times because of their vileness and their unworthiness. They never felt that there was any need for the Son of God to come into the world. They were self-satisfied. They were self-sufficient. They were self-contained. And it was because of that he said, Woe unto you. What else could he say to them? But look at the other side to this equation, if, if you like to so put it. To other people he says, Come unto me. To whom does he say this? Well, he's already put it in these words. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things 
from the wise and prudent and has revealed him unto babes. Babes. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Labor, heavy laden. Who are these? Oh, these are people who realize they're just babes. They don't get intoxicated because we've split the atom and say, I'm a 20th century man, I've grown, I'm of age, I've come up to the stature that men should have... Oh, I've got knowledge, I've got wisdom, I've got... I don't believe what people believed a thousand and two thousand years ago. No, no. This man says, I'm only a babe. I've got this knowledge, but it doesn't help me. I don't understand myself. I don't understand life. I feel I'm terribly ignorant. I I, I don't know what it's all about. I, I don't understand death. What lies beyond it, I don't know. I just don't know. I'm a babe. I'm an ignoramus. All this knowledge that people boast about, it doesn't answer my deepest questions. I don't know. I'm lost. I, I want light. I want knowledge. I want help. And I'm fighting a terrible and a losing battle. I'm laboring and I'm heavy laden. I've got a terrible load of my past sins upon my shoulders. And it's almost crushing me to the ground. I've sinned and sinned and sinned. I've promised myself never to sin again. I've done it again. I've promised God never to sin again. I've sinned again. I'm laboring. I've got a heavy load. I'm heavy laden, I'm crushed, and yet I find the more I attempt, the more I fail. I'm a complete moral failure. I'm a completely helpless person. I see the task. I see I believe in God. I would live a holy life, but I can't. I haven't got the power. I'm suffering from a kind of spiritual inanition. I'm laboring. I'm heavy laden. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm falling. I'm fainting. I'm failing. I'm a babe in understanding. I'm an utter and a complete failure in the great business of life and living and the moral fight. And I don't know how to die and I'm afraid of it and afraid of what lies beyond it. I don't know where I am. What can I do? God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And you know the moment the man said that, you know what happened? He heard a voice, the sweetest voice he'd ever heard, whispering to him, Come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, what determines what he says is our attitude, it's our state of mind, it's our state of heart, it's our state of soul. Sit in judgment on him and say you don't need him and criticize him and put him in his place. There comes the thundering answer. Why do you? But recognize and acknowledge and feel your need. Confess your sin and shame and failure to God and cry out for mercy and compassion. Repent. And the gracious invitation will come to you. Come unto me, he will say. Very well, my dear friends, let me, as I close, therefore, ask you again to listen to these two positions. There are only these two possibilities. You reject him and ignore him in your wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And on you will be pronounced this woe, our Lord says, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. There's a judgment coming. And any man who dies in his sin goes on to endless Hopeless world. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment. It's coming. And if you reject him and if you fail to repent, even if you turn to him and try to turn to him in the next world, he will turn to you and say, Depart from me. 
I never knew you. There is a great gulf fixed between you and me. That is one of his pronouncements, but I don't end with that. Listen to the other. Come unto me, he says. Who's to come? Well, listen, this is his own answer. Come unto me, all ye that are laboring and heavy laden. All. It doesn't matter what you've been hitherto. It doesn't matter how you may have spent your past life. It doesn't matter at all. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. It doesn't matter how vile your sin, how putrid your soul. The Son of God looks at you tonight in your helplessness and hopelessness if you are conscious of it and if you long for deliverance and he says, let not conscience make you linger or a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to see and to feel your need of him. Oh, what a blessed gospel. I, in the name of this Christ tonight, have authority to say this. The greatest blackguard that London has ever known may be listening in this congregation at this moment. You may be a thief, you may be a murderer, you may be an adulterer, you may be the vilest creature that has ever trod the face of the earth. I have authority to say this to you. Are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Have you come to the end? Listen, he says this to you. Come unto me. You are included in the invitation. Today thy mercy calls us to wash away our sin, however great our trespass. Whatever we may have been, it doesn't matter. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, come! The invitation is to you. It isn't your deeds that matter, it's the attitude that matters. Even Sodom and Gomorrah could have been saved if they'd repented. There is hope for any man who repents and who humbles himself and falls at his feet and is ready to receive the invitation. And what does he give? Well, here it is. Rest for your souls. What does it mean? Well, the end of that useless striving, the end of the unhappiness, the end of the fear of death and the grave and the judgment. Peace. Rest. Oh, just the knowledge of sins forgiven. That though they wear as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come unto him, and he'll take you to this great book, and he'll say, there was what was set against you. It's all cancelled. It's wiped out. There's nothing against you. Rest for your soul. End of that useless striving to make yourself good and moral and clean and to justify yourself before God. End of all that. So you say, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And he'll give you new life on top of it. He'll teach you then, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for yourselves. He says, I won't leave you to yourself to fight the world, the flesh, the devil. You'll be yoked to me. My power will be in you. I'll redeem you. I'll keep you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he'll keep you and he'll hold you all the way until he has finally presented you faultless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing to God his heavenly Father in the glory everlasting. Oh, my dear friend, can you refuse such an invitation? Come, he says, come unto me. You are vile and I am pure, but doesn't matter. Come, come unto me. I've died for your sins. I've cleared your debts. I've reconciled you to my Father. Come unto me. You can have rest and peace for your soul. Come unto me, weary, and I will give you rest. 
Oh, blessed voice of Jesus that comes to hearts oppressed. It tells of benediction, of pardon, love and peace, of joy which has no ending, of love which cannot cease. Have you heard it? Have you heard the gracious invitation? Are you humble? Are you a babe? Are you ignorant? Are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Do you feel lost and forlorn and helpless and terrified of death and judgment? Is that it? Are you ready to listen? He says, come. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Have you heard him? Well, if you have, say this to him. I hear thy gentle voice. That calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. Say that to him. And then for the rest of your life, this is what you'll say to everybody. You'll say, do you want to know why I am what I am? Do you want to know the explanation of the life I'm living? Do you want to know why I've got such joy? Do you want to know why I'm no longer afraid of death? Do you want to know why I am now able to conquer sins that always used to defeat me? Do you know the explanation? It's this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he hath made me glad. Come unto me. All ye that are weary and laboring and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Blessed be God. For so great and glorious a salvation to hell deserving sinners. Amen. Let us sing that great hymn of Horatius Bonar. Hymn number 376. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest.